Because if you want to go fast, get a fast bike. If you just want to enjoy the ride, get a Dutch bike. That's what I have. And I'm not fast at all, but, but I still have fun doing it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman, and I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to be your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm honored to share with you this recent conversation I had with City Council member Paige Ellis, who represents District 8 in the Southwest area of Austin, Texas. I have the distinct pleasure and privilege of getting to know Paige during the 2019 People for Bikes study tour to the Netherlands. And I've been wanting to circle back with her to ask about her lingering and lasting impressions from this experiential learning opportunity. As you'll soon discover, she was profoundly and positively influenced by the experience, both personally and professionally. We talk about recent infrastructure improvements in the city, the game-changing mobility bond she co-sponsored, which passed in the November election, as well as the Interstate 35 Expansion Challenge. But before we roll into all those discussions, please allow me a very brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And here's a personal shout out to you, Michael. Thank you for your donation. I really appreciate it. Now, if you're in a position to make a contribution, and seriously, any amount really does help, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that beautiful blue donate button in the top right corner of the page. However, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, but money is tight right now, no worries. Believe me, I can relate. The good news is, is that you can still help me out in a big way by sharing the podcast with friends, colleagues, and even community leaders that you think might benefit from hearing this content. Either way, thank you all so very much for tuning in and whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow the culture of activity movement. Okay, one final reminder before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and many, many more. I really appreciate it. All right, all right, all right. Time to get a little Keep Austin Weird Groove on with council member Paige Ellis. Paige, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. First of all, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. <laughs> I really do appreciate it so much. To get us started, would you please just share a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am Paige Ellis. I am on the Austin City Council, and I represent Southwest Austin, which many know uh, has the Green Belt and Barton Springs and the Violet Crown Trail, which is an uh, urban trail we all know and love locally. And Zilker Park, too, one of the most amazing activity assets in the city, right? Yes, the home of ACL. There's, there's so many great things happening in the district, it's hard to name them all. Now, are, are you uh, born and raised here in, in Austin or, or in the area? I actually grew up in San Antonio, so I'm not, I'm not too terribly far away from where my entire family is. Um, it's nice to be about an hour and a half away, close enough to get to visit often, but not so close that you're on top of each other. 
Okay. So let's get right into it. Why run for office? Why city council? Why subject yourself to that? (laughs) If I had a dime for every time I've been asked that question, you know, it really came from a place of passion, just wanting to help my community and help my neighbors. Before I decided to run for council, I was working for an environmental consulting firm. So I had a pretty good working knowledge of environmental regulations, how they relate to development and how how cities build and what is good, um, responsible development practices. And so I just thought that was a unique experience and wanted to try my hand at public service. Wow, that's cool. So yeah, not only a unique experience, but very relevant to just uh, a lot of the stuff that I talk about and think about in terms of of active towns. And and obviously, uh, you were kind of thrown right into that during (laughs) your tenure so far. Now, how long have you been in office? I am about halfway through my term. So I've been in for two years and um, it's a four year term. So what has been your biggest surprise so far serving uh, on the council? I mean, really just getting into the nitty gritty of all the departments. That's, you know, one thing that surprised me coming into office was, you know, I just thought you bring something to someone's attention and they go fix it. And the reality is when you have you know, large departments, large contracting when you're trying to repair sidewalks or build bike lanes. You can't just say, I have a great idea. You have to know when is a reasonable expectation to get this accomplished and where are we going to find the money is the biggest question. They don't usually just have extra time and money laying around in a city this big. It's allotted, it's programmed. There's a lot of planning that goes into it. And they tee up projects for years in advance. So it can be very difficult to try to get something in the mix unless you do something big and bold like Prop B, which is our big urban trails and bicycle infrastructure uh, proposition that just passed. So that's $460 million that will be available over the next six years to do these projects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was in November, the, the November election. So the 2020 November election it was uh, known as Proposition B then, not to be confused with the Proposition B that the, the city has in front of it in uh, in May. Right. And uh, the official name I think that uh, y'all are going with now, because on March 4th, you just approved the release of funds for the 2020 Active Transportation and Safety Bond. Tell us a little bit more about that bond. You you were one of the the original, I, I don't know if I have the right wording here, one of the original authors of it. Yes, I was the lead sponsor. So it does take co-sponsorship and working with my colleagues to get something officially on an agenda. But I and my policy director, Julie Montgomery, worked on it extensively to get it to a place where it could it could get the support of council to go to the ballot for the voters to decide if they wanted to spend this money or not. Now, you mentioned the total amount. Talk a little bit about some of the details that you're most excited about in there. Oh, gosh, it's it's really hard to pick because it's known mostly as an urban trails, bicycle infrastructure, mobility bond. But we worked with folks over at Vision Zero, the Safe Routes to School, substandard streets. So we're going to actually see some street improvements for public transportation like Cat Metro, our public bus system that we have here. Um, So it really ended up with a lot baked into it which is really exciting because people all over town are going to get to see something out of this proposition. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I just pulled it up and, and it looks like, yeah, a significant amount of funding 
uh, for, as you mentioned, the urban trails and also sidewalks too. And, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the, the biggest challenges so many cities have around the country uh, around North America in general and in many other, you know, countries, especially like down in Australia and in New Zealand is that many streets, especially some of the streets, uh, in some of the neighborhoods that got built out very, very quickly, they just have substandard sidewalks or no sidewalks at all. So, uh, and I know that this uh, small amount of funding and I say small amount, $80 million is not small, but I mean, we have a billion dollar funding gap when it comes to to sidewalks, but this is mm-hmm. truly, truly exciting. And I just I need to say this right up front is a and I meant to say it earlier. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you so much for for t- running for office, for becoming a city council member. I can't tell you how many times that I've you know tuned in for important stuff that was going through city council. And it's a late night meeting and it, it's, it's, I mean, you have to be tireless <laughs> to do this job. It, it is a lot. And, you know, when I met with my, my new colleagues who are uh, some of the only people that are newer than I am, you know, I let them know you will get out of it, whatever you put in and you can choose how much you want to put into it. Um, I'm just the type of person that goes all in. It's like, I can't stop myself. And I always end up taking more on and then trying to figure out, you know, what, what do we really need to spend our time on and what should my team be spending their time on? And so we really knew early on that this particular topic was going to be something we went big on. We wanted to do important work. We can't waste any time. You know, when you think about transportation planning in general, you're always behind. There's always more that needs to be done than you'll ever truly be able to accomplish, especially if you're trying to take a snapshot and to have something that is just has a bow on it. It's perfect. You know, every sidewalk is safe and built out. Um, And that's the tricky part of trying to manage these big projects is that a city will never see a moment where every sidewalk is perfect. But that's why it's so important to look at big picture planning. How do cities build? Where do they put transit and housing and jobs? And to really make sure you're getting the most bang for your buck. Um, So that's kind of an important concept that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. And I, and I hear a little bit of sense of urgency in your voice. So, so why can't we waste any more time when it comes to this? Well, because doing work as an elected official takes negotiation. It takes input. We just passed Project Connect, which was Proposition A, the same time Proposition B was on the ballot last November. And people had been working in this city to get more public transportation options for decades. And so you see this in any big city, there's going to be some conversation that takes 20 or 30 years to even get to the, the go light, the green light, you know? And so when you have your opportunities, you can't, you can't say, well, maybe I'll work on that later. You have to say the moment could be now. And I don't want to be the reason this doesn't get across the finish line, but it's an, it's an incredible opportunity to say, we've got money, the community supports it. And we can start building out these plans that have been well-developed over the years. They just didn't have the funding to get it all done, which is what's so incredible about this moment. Yeah, it really is incredible, too. Now, you just mentioned there that the community supports it. Both of these bonds in the 2020 election uh, passed overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Well, (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I think you're right. I think the, the timing yeah. is right. I mean, it, it, it seems like because you know this because you're on the receiving end of the complaints and the NIMBYs and the and the people who don't want to see change. I'm out there monitoring what's going on worldwide. And I hear about, you know, the, the horror stories and the battles that are taking place. But mm-hmm. then when you see two bonds like this, one supporting active mobility and one supporting transit, and they pass overwhelmingly, it's like, wow, <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, first of all, they were able to pass because of all the legwork that had been done previously. It's almost like you, everyone already established their organizing structure. They knew how to make sure people can communicate that they want this and they, they do want to buy into this, um, you know, this pro- these projects, I should say. But in, in times that I have been able to go visit other communities like Portland, Seattle, Amsterdam, and you can just get on public transit and you see how effortless it is. And then you come home to Austin and why haven't we done this before? Why haven't we been able to get this off the ground? And so I think being able to see how other communities have done it, we just, I think, hit this moment where we knew we were way behind the times and it's going to take a long time to build out. People aren't going to see light rail tomorrow. It's going to take a while to get through the environmental process. But I'll never forget going to Portland and being able to get my weekend card and just jump on anything and go anywhere. And I could go to the zoo and I could go to a soccer game and I could go to the airport and it's all seamless. And it was just baffling to so many people for so long that we hadn't been able to get it across the finish line. You know, Project Connect is a fantastic proposal that had a lot of public input and a lot of coordination going into it. And then the community advocates, it was actually while we were in the Netherlands that the real deal was proposed. And they said, why don't we supplement how good Project Connect's going to be with something that has bike lanes and sidewalks? And so that's where the idea came from. Other groups stepped up along the way too, like Austin Outside and, you know, Bike Austin, Walk Austin, a whole host of other organizations coming out in support of this. And so it just seemed like why would I say no at this point? We've gotten it this far. People want it. It's the right time. Let's let's try. Let's try our hardest to get this to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have to agree, too, that I think it was when we were over in the Netherlands, I was able to tag along on that particular study tour as I was doing some documentation work for the Active Towns Initiative. And uh, I was impressed by, I think, how integrated the systems were all of the mobility systems and and you just mentioned it there and of course cap metro has now sort of brought into their fold the the our bike share program mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about how that how that experience was for you and how that influenced you so one of the concepts that has stuck with me the most on that trip was um, one of our guides was saying are bicycles invited or are they merely tolerated in a space? And it really stuck with me. It's such a simple concept where, you know, we have spaces where it's like you could ride a bike, but it's certainly not safe. And then we talked about the conversation of why does our public transit have so many different people holding the ball? So Project um, Cat Metro was doing the buses. B-Cycle was being run by a different entity. 
And I learned on the trip because there was a representative there from Cat Metro that said, hey, we're working on absorbing the bicycle portion of it so we can streamline. Do you buy a weekend ticket and therefore you can use any of the services available? Are you getting off a bus and able to get onto a bicycle very quickly? Because it seems like it was a little disassembled where you get off the bus and then the bike share would be a couple blocks away. And so it was really exciting to, to see that they had already thought about that, <laughs> was already on their radar. They were already working on it. And now, um, since I'm the, the chair of the mobility committee for the city of Austin now, we are going to make May bike month. And we're hoping to have more conversation around programs such as that one and a couple other initiatives that are that are going on in town. And so it's great to see they are already doing that because I know planning takes a while um, but I'm very excited to see how that B-Cycle program that they've rebranded now as Metro Bike can also be available in more locations. Um, they're electrifying the fleet, which is really exciting. So not everyone has to be great at bicycling to feel comfortable riding one. And so I'm really excited to see where that conversation goes and how how well they succeed because they're um, they're doing a great job with it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I concur. And, and I'm excited, too. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to just insert a little commercial here to say that uh, I had the opportunity to interview Roland Kaher from the Netherlands, who was one of the individuals that spoke to us uh, over there during the study tour. And he was talking about and, and our entire conversation was all about that integration of the public transit system and bikes and he really considers bikes to be that magical ingredient that just makes everything work so well. Because when you have that access to a bike or and you have a network that supports riding a bike, mm -hmm. suddenly your shed of each transit stop is has multiplied out exponentially. It's like nine times greater than what it would be if someone was trying to walk to and from a, a transit station. So right. I'll, I'll make sure that I include that link. Again, this is a, a a commercial break here. I'll make sure I include that link in the show notes and on the landing page to this episode. It's already uh, proving to be one of the most popular uh, uh, podcast episodes that I've ever recorded. So I know that there's a great interest around the world about that integration. Mm -hmm. Some of the other things that I'm, I'm super excited about that uh, I think it was a lesson that sort of came from that trip too. For me, it really drove it home was the relationship that people have to public spaces and their streets in particular. How about you? What, mm -hmm. what were some of the other things that really resonated with you? Well, some of it was just the actual engineering and design of these spaces. And, you know, growing up in Texas, everything is a big wide street. Um, a lot of the way that our highways and streets are built don't include sidewalks or, or bike infrastructure. That's starting to change, which is really exciting to see. But they've just been working on it for so much longer that they've come up with things that we wouldn't even know to look at for a while if we were trying it on our own. But things like heat sensors. So a bike pulls up to an intersection and you don't have to touch anything. That was something that was more on my radar, you know, since the pandemic where I would be out running or on my bicycle and I would be like, how do I push the crosswalk thing? And um, so I really love kind of the automation of, of being able to do that. Downtown, the transportation department just retimed the pedestrian and car signals so that the pedestrians and the bikes get a five-second lead time 
ahead of the cars, which gives them that priority and that ownership of that space in that moment. It seems like a very simple thing, but what a brilliant idea to just be able to say, let's give them a head start. And then the cars have to respect that space. Um, so, so that's been really exciting. And then another thing that I thought about while you were speaking just a second ago was that I try to tell people and explain to people that changing a commute pattern, whether it's for work, whether it's for entertainment, it doesn't have to be all or nothing on one system. That's kind of the beauty of being able to blend these is you can walk to a bike share, you can take that bike to the light rail or, you know, to wherever you're going. And it just seems like something that people haven't even thought about if they've never tried. You know, if all you've ever done is drive a car, which I drive a car too, that's part, part of my menu of options, includes driving my car. But it's so interesting to think it doesn't just have to be your commute is 100% of any of those methods. You can pick and choose your own adventure, which is, which is exciting. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, we have to always remember, too, is that, that uh, our trips are not always just one type of trip. You know, yes, the commute trip is one of the trips, but really when you look at some of these cities like the Portlands and and like Boulder, Colorado, and like uh, over there in the Netherlands, as we saw, is that they, they don't really look at it in that narrow, narrow vision of just the commute trip. It's like all trips. And so when you start embracing that, that grocery store run or, you know, heading to school if, you know, with, with children and, and things of that nature. It's like, if you can shift some of those trips as well, or potentially instead of, uh, away from the, the, the automobile, it's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of other things that are, are there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's good to keep that in mind. Then I've heard of folks maybe like driving to work, but then if they're, you know, meeting someone for lunch, they take the bike for that trip. And so it's not, you know, you can kind of blend it. If you really, if you have the options available and they're accessible to you, people will find creative ways to use them. Well, it's a great point too. And it brings up the the point of, you know, having access to mobility options uh, when you get to that final destination, um, regardless of how that original trip was, whether it was driving a motor vehicle in or a transit ride in, do you have the ability to jump on a different mode of mobility, whether it's a scooter or uh, a bike share bike or, or something else. Uh, or, you know, if it's a nice day and it's not too long of a trip, walking, the original mobility mode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just amazing what it does to, to your day to get a little fresh air and to see something a little different. I mean, I, I just think that biking has the most fun way of getting somewhere as long as you've got a safe route and, you know, trees and a park space to get through, which we're very fortunate to have a lot of in Austin but it's much more enjoyable than sitting in traffic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I love the fact that you channeled a little bit of joy in there too about biking. And, and I know this about you cause I know what type of bike that you ride. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that, that uh, I frequently talk about on the active towns podcast is that upright bike, mm-hmm. you know, that ability to sit up and feel comfortable. Talk a little bit about that because you experienced it firsthand in the Netherlands. And then I think it was right when you got back, you bought a new bike, right? This is the next day. <laughs> and what was funny is there were a few of us on the plane coming back that were all looking up the bike shops in town and shopping for bikes on the airplane because we were so excited about it. I had a couple other colleagues who had bikes in their garage. They needed to just, 
you know, take it in for a checkup and get everything kind of retooled and, you know, voila, you're, you're ready to go. I and the city manager were both shopping for the same bike and ended up getting them the same day because I wanted the, the color that she got. Um, and by the time I got there, they only had the cream one left. And, and then I learned who got it. And that really cracked me up. But the really nice thing about the way the Dutch do cycling is that it's, it's not like a sport or a workout to them. It's just how you get from point A to point B. And they wear their clothes they're wearing for the day. They're wearing jeans and coats and, you know, normal shoes and things like that. And what we see a lot in Central Texas, especially, is, is a lot of the people who do bicycle do it as, as recreation, as sport. Some compete, um, you know, they are in those kind of levels of pro bicycling or just being really good at it. But what was so interesting about being in the Netherlands was I got passed by an 80 year old grandma and she was like, get out of the way. And I just loved the fact that people were staying fit and healthy and the way their bikes are designed is just a bit more comfortable. You can put a backpack on the back of it. Um, it's got rain fenders. So you don't get you know wet. You don't get muddy. Mine has accessories. I have a cup holder on mine. If I want to get a cup of coffee and go for a bike ride, I've, I've got it. I've got it all right there. So I just liked that I hadn't really seen a lot of this, but then when I got back and started noticing the difference in bicycles, I noticed there were quite a few people who were using regular like Dutch bikes, commuter bikes to, to get around. And the, the bonus point is they look really good when they get old and a little, a little dinged up, which mine finally took its first spill. But, but I just think they, they look good. They're supposed to be utilitarian. And that's another aspect of cycling that I've really come to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, you you mentioned the city manager got the bike. I, I don't think he meant the city manager. Sorry, city attorney. Yes. Okay. Very good. <laughs> I want to make that clarification. It was yes. City attorney. Because <laughs> she was on the trip too. Yes. 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 Fantastic. A- excellent. So you mentioned downtown and some of the the tweaks and the improvements that are going on th- uh, down there. What are some of the other recent installations on the ground in the city that has you most excited about the future and why? I would, there's probably a blend of things that have been interesting to me. One is that the transportation department have already been thinking about how to handle speed mitigation for, um, to make sure that there's space on the streets where cars aren't driving so fast that they, you know, inadvertently bump into someone. So they were thinking about that. And then we did a a really fun project that's still ongoing called Healthy Streets, where some of these quiet neighborhood streets have able have been able to apply essentially to be barricaded off so kids can learn to ride their bikes there. The only cars coming through are people who live there. Um, so they are, you know, slower, safer. We decided to name them Healthy Streets. Um, a number of cities are trying to do this. But it's been really interesting to see how public works and transportation have been working together to say, well, what if we make this shoulder a buffer? What if we put the, the flexi beams and little parking stumps like as kind of that protection? So it's not a fully protected lane, but it is a whole lot better than just a painted shoulder. And so some of those conversations were ongoing. I think now that we've been doing a lot of work in this space, they can see that council is on board with creating this safer space. The departments feel like they have a little more go ahead to say, maybe we can reconfigure this street a little bit that still allows for cars to use it to commute and safer for people on bikes or in wheelchairs or people with strollers. 
Um, and so they've really gotten creative with that use of space. And that's that's been really interesting to see. I'm always interested in what they're up to. Yeah, yeah. And you had mentioned that, yes, cities uh, around the, the globe are really uh, looking at ways to to extend this out and and look at some speed mitigation and and part of the reason was is that due to the pandemic there was just an outflow of people onto the streets onto the residential streets I know in our neighborhood here it it probably increased tenfold the number of people who were walking and biking um, and just trying to get some fresh air for health reasons and and. And just to get out of the house, because when, you know, when the lockdown was at its peak, it was, you know, it was so incredibly necessary to get that breath of fresh air. And in some neighborhoods, like in our neighborhood, um, we don't have sidewalks. And so it, it's always a shared street environment. But it's been very, very interesting to see that that shift in relationship. And I had mentioned that earlier, the relationship to the street. What are some of the other observations that you've had? from your perspective on city council about that shift and 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 obviously there's some tension to it because ah, it's changing oh my gosh don't change i know i know you can't make any big change without someone you know just saying i want to know more i'm worried about it is it is it going to bring more traffic for me whether that's more cars or just cars are moving slower but there has been this really big shift since the pandemic started where all of a sudden a lot of the fear that people working from home were not going to get any work done. We're seeing people are getting more work done. People are, the meetings are back to back. There's less commute. People don't have a moment to get a glass of water in between meetings. Um, so it's almost increased productivity, even though families obviously are dealing with so much with work and kids and their own health and their own families. And one of the things that kind of surprised me about that shift in traffic is that we actually saw higher injury situations happening because there were no cars on the road and people were driving really fast. And so there's obviously this kind of song and dance to how, what does a full street mean? Is a wide street safer? Is a narrow street safer? What, what does lane width do to car traffic and accommodating all modes of traffic? And so I think that's been an interesting thing that we probably wouldn't have gotten to understand any better if we weren't dealing with the pandemic, which is kind of a weird give and take. But I have noticed, you know, when, when I drive down Barton Springs and I just, cause I drive down it all the time. And so I'm always paying attention to like the bicycle lanes and the car traffic. People drive too fast. It's a, it's a park. People have their children with them. People are bringing their dogs and it's just unpredictable. And so I'm always like, maybe we can make the lanes like, couple inches smaller and people would just slow down or maybe we need better signage. But I think the opportunity to test these theories out is something that has been presented to us in this last year. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned, uh, you know, Barton Springs Road, because as you indicated there, it goes right through the middle of Zilker Park. And in some cities, they have either really just banned cars completely from their parks. It's probably not likely um, with this particular situation because it is a, a connector to Mopac. Mm-hmm. But it does lead me to believe that, you know, in seeing the landscape of where, you know, cities like New York and Denver and, and many, many others are looking at that that concept of what you mentioned earlier, which is speed mitigation and how can we uh, decrease that, that 
uh, intensity of speed and maybe even by doing so uh, off ship shift some of the volume you know so that you can decrease the number of volume of motor vehicles because if they do have a, an alternate route uh, they may choose to go an alternate route versus you know cutting right through the park mm -hmm. <laughs> because you're right it's not very <laughs> it's not very people friendly and people oriented to have uh, high speed traffic through the middle of a park right and you know there is a crossing beacon for pedestrians and cyclists, but there's only one in the park. And so people are always kind of, you know, it attracts tourists too, which are people who may not, you know, know that people try to drive really fast through there and they're, you know, thinking they can get across safely and, and it's not a safe crossing for people. So we are certainly looking at, you know, some of those configurations. Um, and I did say there was one pedestrian hybrid beacon. There's another crosswalk at a light through that park. So there's a couple opportunities to get from, one side to the other, but there's certainly a lot of different needs for the space that are sometimes at odds with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Not to get too wonky or anything or into the weeds in terms of infrastructure, but, you know, having spent as much time as I have in the Netherlands, I'm a huge fan of small footprints, slow speed roundabouts and uh, reducing the total number of travel lanes and and because it, it changes the ball game if if motor vehicles are traveling at around 30 kilometers per hour, which is right around give or take you know 15 to 17 miles per hour because then the the reaction and the interaction between the motor vehicle driver and the person who is walking or biking is much different that's it, it, there's that you can actually make eye contact mm -hmm. you know it's like oh wow yeah. And so it always, you know, just kind of like, gee, what could we do? Because it still allows for a fair amount of flow mm -hmm. of motor vehicles through the space. But suddenly it's it's a it's a different context. And you and I experienced this in the Netherlands is that 70 percent of the bicycle infrastructure in the Netherlands actually isn't bicycle infrastructure. It's actually shared streets or what they call feetstraats, where it's a bicycle priority street where, you know, Motor vehicle drivers and bicyclists, they share the space. Imagine that. <laughs> right, right. Right, it really is. And, um, you know, as you bring up that speed limit discussion, what was interesting to me in the Netherlands about the way they had planned some of the cities was that they said there should be highways. It should get you from one city to another. But then when you get into the neighborhood streets, you should slow down a little bit more. And as you get into like your dense downtown area where you have a lot of pedestrians, it needs to be even slower. Um, so a lot of bicycling and, and scooting, as, uh, as we have here in Austin, the electric scooters, they operate at about the same speed, which kind of makes sense in a downtown area. You'd say, okay, the sidewalk needs to be for the pedestrians who are going from store to store. The bike lane needs to be for bikes and scooters and then a car lane for cars to be able to get through. And so when you think about sharing that space and having the cars go the same speed almost as the bicycling, then all of a sudden you're able to, to have that momentary interaction where you're like, okay, they're going to get in front of me. You know, they're, they have the right of way. I'll, I'll, I'll go, but I'm not like barreling down the street, honking at people to get out of the way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, since we were talking about Barton Springs Road, it's one of the roads that recently that has had some level of protection put onto uh, a portion of the, the bike lane there. 
it had already had a, a buffer and now it does have some physical protection um, that's been placed in there. We've also mm -hmm. seen that pop up in a reconfiguration and a revisualization of what Congress Avenue is like. Mm -hmm. And specifically, you know, helping to get people who are walking and cycling across the, the, the lake, across Lady Bird Lake. So you can get from SoCo, the South Congress Avenue area, into the downtown. Talk a little bit about that, because that's, that's a pretty momentous thing that took place. That, that was a really cool project to see happen because it happened very, the, the construction of it happened very quickly because there were already plans in place and a background to um, what should we do on Congress. The initiative to, to get that started came right about the time that we did Healthy Streets. And one of my colleagues who represents that area, you know, said, We've been doing a lot of planning and there's been group involvement and public input on what we would like to see for Congress Avenue. And that's a spot that a lot of people who are visiting Austin go to because at the north end, you have the state capitol, a lot of businesses in the downtown area. And then you want to see Lady Bird Lake and the bridge that goes across. There are bats that live under that bridge. So people love to stop at sunset and wait for the bats to come out. And then you continue on down to South Congress where there's a lot of shops and you can eat at great restaurants and buy yourself a pair of boots and do all these really cool things while you're in Austin. But there was no good way for people to really be able to kind of enjoy the whole street if they wanted to see it for a day. And so uh, my colleague said, hey, let's kick this off. Let's do those protected lanes. There's no cars anyway. And all this planning's already been done, so it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone and it is so much fun when I go see how it's working. And when I'm on my bike, I purposefully go see how people are using that space. But now you've got an opportunity where people can stop on the bridge, you know, enjoy the lake. You've got a lane for the scooters and the bicycles. You've got car lanes still. And they even were able to use some of the space in the dense downtown area between Cesar Chavez and it's probably 6th or 8th Street, where they were finally able to create some left turn lanes. So all of a sudden you had this traffic pattern that was better for cars too, because the left turn lanes weren't blocking the, the straight lanes as people were trying to, to continue north or south. Um, so it was a really interesting reconfiguration of how that works. And it, it was able to be deployed very quickly because when you're dealing with bike infrastructure, it's a matter of go put out the posts and the curbs and, and paint it. And I mean, it's just so cool. And now I see people like zipping up and down and they're not in the way of the cars, which is safer for them. And the pedestrians are not trying to share that space with pedestrians who want to stop and look and take pictures. And so it's been a really, really cool blend of kind of everyone's winning with something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this is sort of an interim phase because eventually there will be a complete reimagining and and reconfiguration of Congress Avenue into something uh, of a, a much more uh, people-oriented design to it. Uh, the other thing is really cool. Um, it, as you were talking, it just popped into my head: is how cool is it that uh, we now have like this little protected intersection right there at Congress Avenue and Third Street? Because mm -hmm. that Third Street, of course, had uh, protected, uh, you know, bike lanes in it, you know, for years now. So now we've got, oh, wow, here's a little bit of the Netherlands right here in downtown. Yeah. And I love, I'll, I'll use that third street lane often when I'm trying to get east, west through, through downtown. 
because it also connects up to a, a, the Metro Rail Red Line station. And they've just completed a little bit of bike work so that it continues all the way across 35. So you've got this protected bike lane that goes almost from Shoal Creek all the way down the east side where they're doing um, some final construction on another development that's, that's down there. And so it's a really, really cool east-west connector that you feel completely safe on and it's well-maintained. And it does have a little jog across a highway access road that is only two lanes in that spot. So you don't feel like it's that scary, but that's been interesting. You're like, you can get all the way across a highway without really needing to stop for anything. And the, the lights are timed really well. The cars are traveling slow enough because it's downtown that they're not traveling any faster than the bicycles anyway. So the lights are almost perfectly timed for you as a bicyclist. Yeah, in fact, you had mentioned the leading uh, pedestrian indicator uh, at the the some of the intersections there, and that's that's the you also have that on the Third Street bike lane. There is that uh, mm-hmm. in most instances at most of the intersections, there's actually a, a lead interval for the people in the bike lane so that they can get started and, and get moving across the intersection prior to the green uh, being provided to the motor vehicle drivers. Now, you also mentioned across I-35. So let's talk a little bit about how the city can better address and bridge some of the significant barriers that we have uh, for active mobility and active living and connectivity of of our of our people and some of these are physical barriers like i-35 like other mm-hmm. massive car centric infrastructure but some of it's also perceptual barriers like identity where where folks are like saying you know hey that's not who we are we you know we we are you know we're filling the blank and we don't bike and we don't walk and we don't take transit we drive so we've got two different things we've got the the barriers the physical barriers like i-35 but then we also have the perceptual barriers let's address the physical barriers first and then we'll take up the the really hard part which is that that perceptual barrier what do we do with barriers, physical barriers like I-35. You had mentioned the one and only <laughs> safe, you know, sort of crossings, you know, across, which is is at 4th Street there where it goes under. And as you mentioned, you it, it narrows down to having to cross just two sets of two lanes of the frontage road. And then you go underneath I-35. But even that's not the safest it could be or should be if we really want to encourage all ages and abilities to to, to ride and, and walk more frequently. So how do we address those barriers like that? Well, it's really a conversation that all stakeholders need to be involved in. And one of those discussions is going to involve TxDOT. Right now, through this part of Austin, we're having an ongoing discussion about as TxDOT, our state Department of Transportation in charge of building all of our highways, they are wanting to move more cars through I-35. You know, their their responsibility is to get more people in more places. And so there's a big conversation around what does that look like in a dense downtown area? And it has to be mentioned that this particular highway was a line of segregation in 1928 on an Austin planning map. And so it was based on well, let's go ahead and just put this highway through here because they're not expecting people to be going back and forth across it anyway. 
obviously that has huge implications to not only city planning, but just how people have access to jobs, how people have access to food and, um, you know, healthcare. And so the conversation can't just be, what should this highway look like? What should the schematic look like? It has to be, what does it mean to our community and how can we right a wrong? And so a lot of the public input that's being provided right now through advocates is bury it so we can get across it, whether that's park space or some other thing that we're still trying to figure out the financial component of how can we kind of blend this area that has just been high-speed car traffic or bumper-to-bumper traffic going nowhere across all the lanes. You know, it pollutes the air. It's not good for anyone's mental health. And so in the conversation around a state entity that is going to do some work here, we're trying to bring a lot of people to the table to say, we need to be looking at every angle of this and we need to pick the best possible solution for our city. And it seems like everyone's on board and wants to solve this problem. So I'm really hoping we can get to a a final decision that is a benefit to our community after this huge highway has been there for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is the manifestation uh, in, in physical form of segregation and a barrier. And so it, it, it also gives us an opportunity as a city, uh, as you mentioned, uh, to, to right a wrong and to, you know, create a, you know, stitch together a, a community. And, and I, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll make some progress on that front and uh, we shall see. Yeah. So the other thing we had talked about was the perceptual barriers. So so how can we do a better job as a city of, of bridging those barriers? That's a really difficult one. And this, what works for one city is not necessarily going to work for every city. You know, Austin, in my perception, was always very much like, if you were a cyclist, you were a triathlete, like you were one of the good ones, you were really fit, and you could go really fast. And you had special shoes and everything. And, and I think what's happening now is people are just so tired of sitting in car traffic that they've realized Wait, that pedestrian is actually going faster than I am. That cyclist is also getting where they're going. They're beating me to every light. I'm sitting in traffic behind. And so not only is it just more enjoyable, but I think it's something that people just need to try. Like we're not trying to tell everyone to sell all their vehicles. You know, it, it, it may not be an option for a lot of people, but we probably all know someone who said, hey, we went from a two-car family to a one-car family, or we got cargo bikes, which makes running errands and, you know, getting a little further in a climate like, you know, the heat of Texas, uh, quite a bit more approachable. And so for me, sometimes it's just about baby steps. I'm not trying to convert someone who says, I'm never, you know, going to give up my car, but maybe they might think about getting a bike too and giving it a shot. If they're only going to their friend's house a block away, maybe, maybe try another mode. And so I'm really just trying to get people to, to think about it, try it, you know, maybe, maybe rent one for a weekend, see how you like it. Because more often than not, I think things are less scary if you just give it a try. And you may have a moment while you're trying this new thing where you're like, okay, maybe, maybe there is a, a spot or two where I would use this in my life. Maybe, maybe I could, you know, use it to get to, you know, where I need to be on just one day of the week or just one trip. Um, so I think people are curious about it. I hope more people are um, interested in learning about it and understanding it. It doesn't mean everyone's going to just only commute by bike, but 
you know, every car off the road is less traffic. You actually move better, I think, on a bike through a dense city. So there are some benefits to it that I hope people who think they would never try it might might give it a little shot. <laughs> yeah. And I love the the words that you use there. You used enjoyable and and curious that curiosity, I think, is so important when it talks to when you talk about changing behaviors and changing those perceptions, because when uh, and that's one of the reasons why I love the, the the relaxed, upright Dutch bike feel is that, you know, it just puts you in a position of being able to smile and see people and wave and mm-hmm. and very, very comfortable traveling slowly. And therefore, it's much more relatable. And so you take advantage of that curiosity that people might have and they go, oh, well, there, there's Paige. She's smiling. She's waving. It's like, and she's getting a little activity in as she's going to clearly going to another meeting. <laughs> I think uh, we all become yeah. recognizable by our bikes. Like my colleague Pio Renteria commutes by bike. And I, I know when I see that, that's him. And I think that's kind of the fun thing is that, you know, people where they may think my identity is in my vehicle, sometimes your identity is by your bike too. And there's all different kinds and they're for all different purposes. If you want to go fast, get a fast bike. If you just want to enjoy the ride, get a Dutch bike because that's what I have and I'm not fast at all, but, but I still have fun doing it. Yes. Yes. And to be clear, it's a North American version of a, of a Dutch bike. So it isn't actually a Dutch bike, but it, it right, does give right. you that upright feel. And I'm just sold on the fact that that relaxed upright positioning really just opens things up and makes you more approachable as just a person mm-hmm. on a bike versus a, a cyclist. Mm-hmm. And I just love the visual you know, in, in the Netherlands, people have a basket with flowers and they can, you know, on their way home, get the bottle of wine and a loaf of bread and some flowers. And I just, that's like my vibe. So I'm trying to work my way toward that. <laughs> I love it. That's a great vibe to have. Absolutely. Okay. So what have I missed? What additional thoughts do you have about creating a culture of activity, a culture of active mobility in the city of Austin? Gosh, you know, I don't know that there's anything we didn't touch on. <laughs> you're, you're up to speed on everything we've been working on. Well, I, I do have two final questions. So it's actually a, a single question, but it has two parts. And when it comes to creating a more people-oriented place, what advice would you have for your peers, leaders in other cities uh, across North America and around the world? What advice would you have for them? My advice would be when you're trying to make decisions about something that you have an experience with it. And that doesn't mean you need to be an expert in it, but sometimes elected officials such as myself and my colleagues, we get opportunities to see other cities. And I think you should take that opportunity because there's nothing that can explain more how something is working other than putting yourself in it. And, you know, I learn information by doing it myself. Some people are better at digesting information through reading, but I just think there's there's no way that you could understand it unless you are getting on that bus, you are getting on that light rail, you are getting on that bike. And once you have that experience, all of a sudden the way that you see the work you're doing changes. Because now you're like, oh, we could put a hybrid beacon there and that would work. Oh, we could start doing heat sensors instead of this. And so you really can, you have to immerse yourself in this type of work 
to really be able to say, this is what we need to do to get where we want to be. Great. That's fantastic. And, and to summarize it, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's, you know, keep an open mind, seek out some of those opportunities to, to learn and innovate and learn from other places and be open to some creativity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just, you know, take lots of notes, try different things, because it's always easier to understand a problem if you know more about it and you've learned more about it yourself, not just had someone tell you. It's always valuable to hear from people, you know, when they tell you about an experience they're having, but tell them to take you with them. Say, I want to, I want to see this problem. I want to understand this better so that I know how I can advocate for what we need to fix. Right. So the second part of the question is more personal. It's at more of a personal level. And it's really speaking to the audience who might be inspired by our conversation today. And they want to make a difference in their neighborhoods. Um, what advice would you have for them as 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 an individual, as a community member? I would just say connect with your neighbors. We were able to see in my district, there were neighbors who organized and advocated for change that they wanted to see on their street because it's it's a spot that is, is supposed to have better bicycle infrastructure and it just hasn't been built yet. Someone got injured there and they all got together and said, we need to fix this. So I think if you're interested in something and you want to advocate more or you want to learn more, start by reaching out to your neighbors. You probably know someone who knows a little more than you do about that topic. And then they can connect you with individuals who have been doing this for a long time. And so what I've always found is where, where you have an idea or you want to get into something and know something more about a topic, just call someone in your circle that you know has information and ask them, how do, how do I help? What do I do? You know, where can I sign up? Where can I check in? And so that's a really good way of just getting the basic level started is you don't necessarily need to wait to be invited to some, some meetup. Just call, call a friend, text a friend and say, I'm, I'm interested in this. Tell me more. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, your neighborhood is uh, what would be described as, as certainly more of a suburban context and much more car centric. And so even more important to, mm-hmm. to make those connections and uh, with your neighbors. It really is. I, um, I'm fortunate to live very close to the Violet Crown Trail, but it's very tricky for me to actually connect to it. It's a beautiful trail that runs north-south through my entire district. Um, they're collaborating with a group that's trying to get trails like that all the way between Austin and San Antonio, which is really, really exciting. But there are people who might be within a half mile of something fantastic and still have to drive their bike there to go use it. You know, there, there are still some big hurdles that don't really seem like a big hurdle until you know the lift it's going to take to make that connection. And so that's one of my priorities is to look at where are those connections missing and where can we make the most impact so that people have access to to this infrastructure. Yeah. Paige, it's been such an (laughs) honor and pleasure chatting with you today. Please let's make sure we schedule some time to get out on a bike when it's safe to do so. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has really been an enjoyable hour and I look forward to even more work we're going to get to do together. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 71 of the Active Towns podcast. For three episodes in a row now, we've explored the theme that transforming cities into safer, more inviting places that support and promote a culture of activity is hard work. 
which requires strong leadership and competence at all levels. And lo and behold, Council Member Ellis is a fabulous example of a passionate, caring city leader who looks for opportunities to learn from the experiences of other cities, exhibits courage in taking bold actions for the collective good, and embraces the use of small incremental infrastructure tests, tactical urbanism, if you will, to move with a sense of urgency while evaluating the benefits and feasibility of more permanent investments. Don't forget to check out the show notes for some links and the landing page for some fun photos, videos, and additional helpful links. Okay, that's all for this week. But before I let you go, one final fundraising reminder. Please consider helping me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Every donation makes a huge difference in allowing me the ability to produce this content and grow the culture of activity movement far and wide. To get it done, just head over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Thank you so much. Well, it's time to say goodbye, folks. So until next week, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.